We are here for the real. We are here with our unrequited loves, our night terrors, our overwork. We're here with our little joys, our moments of doing the right thing, our feelings of relationship that keep us moored. We're here today for the real. We're here not for platitudes, not for simple answers, not for promises that can't be kept, but for our common struggle, for a shared consolation for all that's hard, for the possibility of new ways of being. We're here for all the real. Hey everyone, I'm Reverend Bob LaValle and I'm so happy to be here with our interim minister, Kristen Famua, and our worship leader, Geraldine Bowen. Our director of religious education, Mia Noren, is sharing our time for all ages today. And our music today comes from First Unitarian's own soul singers. That's S-O-L, soul singers. That's a group that learns music by ear and shares love with the community. Soul singers meet every Monday at 5.30 in the social hall and all voices are welcome. Doesn't matter if you're classically trained or can't sing a note at all. We want you to join. You know, if you're looking for an embodied spiritual practice, Soul Singers is really worth checking out. It's a beautiful thing to do. Our, stalw our stalwart tech team today is William Baker, who's our DJ, and Michaela Renz-Whitmore and Christine Robinson. Thank you. Thank you to everyone who co-creates this service. If you're visiting today, we'd love it if you put your name and location in the chat. We'd love to say hi to see where you're at. And Gerilyn has some announcements to share. Good morning, faithful friends. So glad to have you with us, not only in virtual presence, but also in essence. Next Sunday, October 30th, ghouls of all ages are invited to put on family-friendly Halloween costumes and join an all-church Halloween bash in the courtyard after the 11 a.m. in-person worship service. There'll be a costume parade, lunch, music and dancing, games for kids, and some spooky fun. In the Celtic sourced pagan tradition, this time of year is called Samhain. It is dedicated to honoring our ancestors and loved ones who have died. Last year, we observed Samhain by con consecrating an altar in the back of the sanctuary to the memory of those the pandemic has taken from us and inscribing the names of our lost loved ones on colored petals that together form a beautiful flower. At 6 p.m. next Sunday, our covenant of UU pagans will hold a ritual in the church courtyard to offer these flower petals to a sacred flame in loving memory of those named on them. You're all invited to attend. If you've placed a name on the altar, you're also invited to read that name aloud to those gathered. Say anything your heart prompts you to say and let the flame transmute your petal. Afterwards, we'll partake of light refreshments and support one another with conversation in a spirit of family sharing. Hello, everyone. Thanks for coming to our Radical Generosity meeting. Today, we're going to talk about our pledge drive. 
Oh, yes. I've been waiting for the details on this. What's our big ticket item this year? Are we going to hire a bunch of new staff? No. Are we funding massive pandemic adjustments to all of our operations? Nope. Buying a neighboring property? Not this time. Completing a million dollar rehab of our existing buildings? No. Oh my gosh. Are we finally getting a corporate jet for Bob and Angela? No. <laughs> We're buying a seat on a SpaceX flight so one of the ministers can deliver a sermon from outer space. <laughs> no, this isn't a space travel pledge drive. In fact, this year our budget is much the same as last year's. Maybe with some raises for the existing staff? Thankfully, yes. Okay, good. So... So you're not going to ask us to increase our pledges by a bunch? Nope. However, we are in a transition year, and this year's pledge drive will show us if we're able to keep moving forward with strength, funding what matters to us as a community. Okay, that's fine. But also, if we do pledge a lot, we get into heaven, right? <laughs> I'm pretty sure the whole point of universalism is that you go to heaven regardless of your pledging history. However, your pledges will help First Unitarians set a course for the future and do a lot of good in people's earthly lives. Okay. And remind me, we, we did rule out selling indulgences, right? Because it's my understanding they can be very profitable. We absolutely have. Okay, hold on. I just had a few, a few more things to ask you about in my notes. Um, live auction for the chance to shave Reverend Bob's head. No. <laughs> okay. Um, first annual Reverend Angela 5K where all participants must wear a minimum three-inch heel. <laughs> no. Okay, last one, LuLaRoe tent sale. Now, uh, hear me out. I watched the documentary too, but I think if we can sell three to four million dollars worth of leggings. <laughs> Thanks, but I think we're going to stick with the pledge drive. Pledging is consistent with our values, and we give as an act of thanksgiving, of joy, and appreciation for the impact that we see First Unitarian having. Our church ha does so much for so many of us, and our pledges are what make it all possible. Hey, fine. Oh, when are pledges due again? Pledges are due November 13th, and of course, the closer we get to that, the closer we get to the board calls. <laughs> In these troubled and troubling times, may the steady light of our sacred chalice show us how to walk our talk in service to what we know to be just and true. May its flame ignite the courage of our convictions 
and grant us inner peace as we do our parts to create a world that honors the worth and dignity of all who are born to this precious earth. May its sustaining warmth open our hearts and steady our steps on the unfolding path of transformation into the beloved community we envision and long for. As we walk that path, may the fire of living presence that burns within each and every one of us merge into the holy conflagration of high communal purpose to which we are called. All right, this is a song from the Peace Poets called This Is The Moment. One, two, this is the moment. Put down what you're holding. Everything is changing. Listen to the wind. And when you hear it, you don't have to fear it. Now's the time for healing everything love. This is the moment, put down what you're holding. Everything is changing, listen to the wind. And when you hear it, you don't have to fear it. Now's the time for healing everything you love. This is the moment. Put down what you're holding. Everything is changing. Listen to the wind. And when you hear it, you don't have to fear it. Now's the time for healing everything you love. Good morning. I'm going to tell you a story today. Oh, I'm just going to do the children's affirmation with you first. <laughs> Who's ready to do it with me? We are Unitarian Universalists. We are people of faith with open minds, loving hearts, and helping hands. Thanks so much for sharing that with me. And now I'm gonna tell you a story about protest. Protest is for everyone, even kids. Protest is something we teach about here, especially when we're learning about the fifth principle. What our youngest children learn is all people need a voice. It's no longer uncommon to see children and teens at protests or even organizing their own. This story is about a protest that no one expected, not even its organizers. Last week, I was in Birmingham, Alabama for a conference, and I made a point of visiting the 16th Street Baptist Church, which was the central meeting place of the 1963 Birmingham campaign. Well, what was that? The purpose of the campaign was to try to put an end to segregation in Birmingham. Now, 1963 was more than 50 years ago. Some of you may not know what segregation meant back then. 
in Birmingham, it meant that black people could not do the same things or go to the same places as white people could. Imagine not being allowed to go to the amusement park, the swimming pool, or the park, ever. Black people couldn't go into restaurants or hotels that served white people. Black children had to go to different schools that weren't as good as the schools that white children went to. Black people weren't even allowed to try on clothes or shoes before buying them. Well, black people didn't think this was fair and neither did some white people. But in many places, especially in the Southern part of the United States, segregation was the law. And if black people tried to go somewhere they weren't supposed to go, they could and did get arrested, beaten, and sometimes even killed. In the spring of 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. went to Birmingham, Alabama, one of the largest and most heavily segregated cities in America to bring people together to change the law. But he was worried about the success of the demonstrations. The meetings were usually attended by around 400 people, but only about 35 or so would volunteer to protest. And then not even all of them would show up. Segregation had to end. So why didn't more people volunteer? Well, you see, people were scared. The sheriff in Birmingham was a man named Bull Connor, and Black people didn't know what he might do to them if he caught them protesting, but they did know it wouldn't be good. Martin Luther King had already been in jail once, and others were afraid to follow him. Besides, they weren't sure that protesting would do any good at all. Dr. King, seeing that no one answered his call, again tried to inspire the group. The struggle will be long, he said. We must stand up for our rights as human beings. Who will demonstrate with me and, if necessary, be ready to go to jail for it? There was a pause, and then a whole group of people stood up. All the people who stood up were children. The adults told them to sit down, but they didn't. Martin Luther King thanked the children and told them that he appreciated the offer, but that he couldn't ask them to go to jail. They still wouldn't sit down. They wanted to help. That night, Dr. King talked with a group of friends about the events of the day. What are we gonna do, he asked. The only volunteers we got were children. We can't have a protest with children. Everyone nodded, except a friend named Jim Bevel. Wait a minute, said Jim. If they want to do it, I say let them. But they're too young, others said. And then Jim asked, are they too young to go to segregated schools? No. Are they too young to be kept out of amusement parks? No. Are they too young to be refused a hamburger in a restaurant? No, said the others then they are not too young to want their freedom. That night, they decided that any child old enough to join a church was old enough to join a march. The children heard about the decision and told their friends. And when the time came for the march, a thousand children, teenagers, and college students gathered. The sheriff arrested some of them and put them in jail. 
The next day, even more kids showed up, some of their parents and relatives too, and even more the next day and the next day. Soon, lots of adults joined in. Finally, a thousand children were locked up together in a children's jail, and there was no more room for anyone else. The youngest child jailed was six years old. And Sheriff Connor had done awful things to try and get the protesters to turn back. He had turned big police dogs loose and allowed them to bite people. He ordered the firefighters to point strong fire hoses at the children and push them down the street. People all over the country and all over the world saw the pictures of the dogs the fire hoses and the children, and they were furious. Now the white people of Birmingham began to worry. All over the world, people were saying bad things about them and their city. Even worse, everyone was afraid to go downtown to shop because of the dogs and the hoses. So they decided they had to change things. After that, it didn't take long for the black people and the white people of Birmingham to make a pact to desegregate the city and let everyone go to the same places. Today, when people tell this story, many people talk about Martin Luther King Jr., but we should always remember the thousands of brave children and teenagers whose courage helped to put an end to segregation in Birmingham and the rest of the United States. Let's pause the chat for a few moments during the meditation and prayer. I invite you to settle in, take a few calming breaths, feeling yourself relax with each exhale. Feel the places in your body that are holding tension and invite them to let go just a bit. You can wiggle your shoulders or arms to let it go if that helps. With each breath, feel your body being held. The earth is down there. Depending on where you are, it might be quite a ways down below you. Imagine yourself removing the levels of separation between you and the earth. Perhaps it's a chair or a bed or a couch that you're sitting on. Imagine that boundary slowly fading away, still feeling held. Perhaps below that chair or bed or couch, there's a carpet or a rug. Let it fade away. Imagine that boundary fading away as you sink closer into the earth. Perhaps below that, there's a floor. Whatever it is, let it fade away. Maybe where you are, there is a foundation. Maybe there are layers of insulation or concrete. Let the boundaries between you and the earth fade away. 
until it is just you and the earth directly connected. In the silence, let yourself soak up the wisdom that comes from billions of years of existence. On this pilgrimage through time, we find ourselves on together. As a spiritual family, we come here this morning to share both what makes our days glad and what burdens our souls. In the clear light of the resounding autumn glory, let us see one another with an inner eye and hear one another with a hidden ear. You're invited to use the chat box to tell us first about your current blessings then about the worries and afflictions that disturb your peace. If for any reason you can't write in the chat box but want to add your voice to our collective chorus, please email caring at uuabq.org. espejo y veo el reflejo de un yo está vivido con mi esfuerzo que va quemando el amor ardiente como el fuego 
Amor de madre, amor de hijos Siguiendo fieles el ejemplo de Cristo Hay tanto que dar y tan poco que pedir Madre Santa del Cielo, hoy cantamos para ti Unidos en la alianza de amor Vamos construyendo sueños Juntos en la misión, tú y yo por ellos Toma mi vida, piensa mi voluntad Ayúdanos siempre a amar la verdad y así lograr la santidad. Déjame educarte, quiero transformarte. Hijo predilecto Y yo voy a guiarte Y sigue a tu hermano Sé todo para todos Entrégate sin miedo Y descubre tu misión Y yo sembraré en la tierra fértil Llenaré el huerto de tu corazón Madre Santa Hoy cantamos para ti, unidos en lazos de fe. Vamos construyendo sueños, juntos en la misión, tú y yo por ellos. Toma mi vida, piensa mi voluntad. Ayúdanos siempre a amar la verdad y así lograr la santidad. All of these we lift up to the great powers of healing and renewal known by many names. 
spirit of life and love, we feel on our hearts the enormity of being alive. In the flurry of all the very big stuff that's happening in the world around us, <clears throat> it's so easy to forget that there is small beauty happening every day. Somewhere in Albuquerque, someone is supporting a friend in the hospital. This week, someone in this congregation brought a meal to a loved one. Someone in Ukraine has helped a neighbor with shelter. Someone at our southern border has brought water to someone they don't know. May we not lose sight of all the ways we are being present with one another. Give us the courage to be kind and compassionate even when we're tired, to remain hopeful and loving even when we feel depleted. May we be known by the ways in which we bring light and love to each other's lives. Amen, blessed be, and peace be with you. This is We Shall Be Known by Carisha Longacre of the duo Mamus. We shall be known by the company we keep, by the ones who circle round to tend these fires. We shall be known by the ones who sow and reap the seeds of change alive from deep. Abuse, a poem by Marge Piercy from Circles on the Water. The people I love best jump into work head first without dallying in the shadows and swim off with sure strokes almost out of sight. They seem to become natives of that element, the black sleek heads of seals bouncing like half submerged balls. I love people who harness themselves an ox to a heavy cart, 
who pulled like water buffalo with massive patience, who strain in the mud and the muck to move things forward, who do what has to be done again and again. I want to be with people who submerge in the task, who go into the fields to harvest and work in a row and pass the bags along, who are not parlor generals and field deserters, but move in a common rhythm when the food must come in and the fire be put out. The work of the world is common as mud. Botched, it smears the hands, crumbles to dust. But the thing worth doing well done has a shape that satisfies, clean and evident. Greek amphoras for wine and oil, Hopi vases that held corn are put in museums, but you know they were made to be used. The pitcher cries for water to carry and a person for work that is real. In 1965, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King issued a call to white people to come to Selma, Alabama to protest the way that Alabama state troopers had been treating people marching for civil rights. A young minister, a UU minister in Boston named James Reeb answered the call, despite having a wife and four young children at home. One evening on that trip, he was walking with two other UU ministers to a meeting in Selma with Dr. King. They were attacked by a group of white men, and Reverend Reeb was hit in the head of a club, and he died of his injuries two days later. In recognition of this, there's now a James Reeb congregation in Madison, Wisconsin, founded in 1993. Isn't that a better name for a church than, say, naming it after a slave owner like Jefferson? Anyways, Reeb was not the only Unitarian Universalist to be killed during that time in Alabama. Viola Luizo from Detroit also answered the call and was shot to death while driving activists around Selma. The legacy of Unitarian Universalists putting their bodies in the way is there. And to be honest, the legacy of UUs not doing enough is there too. A friend of mine in seminary did some research on her home congregation and found that during the run-up to the Civil War, her church had thrown out a member for being too outspoken about abolition of slavery. Ours is a checkered past. But overall, that thread of resistance to oppression is there, built into our seven guiding principles and built into what may become our eighth principle. It's a part of Unitarian Universalist theology that we must work to make a more just and caring world. Whatever our individual beliefs about salvation, about a salvation that happens after we die, we are all committed to making salvation happen here on earth while we're still alive. And this at times requires that we put our bodies in the way. I'm probably not alone in the sanctuary of having experiences of putting one's body on the line. On the cover of today's order of service, actually, which we don't have, <laughs> there's a picture of me and some friends in the Buffalo chapter of showing up for, for racial justice. And in the picture, we are standing in the sheriff's office, holding a banner and chanting. And then we were about to uh, 
sit down and get arrested. We were occupying the local sheriff's office. We used the inconvenient presence of our bodies to draw attention to the fact that the jail that the sheriff ran had one of the highest rates of suicide of any jail in New York State, including the jails in New York City. My friends and I were arrested and were brought into the same jail that we were protesting. Why put our bodies in the way? You know, that language sounds very dramatic and sexy. sexy. I mean, why resist? Why fight? Well, here's an interesting tension. attention. Because there's so much that we need to fight for right now, and those battles have such high stakes, it's actually really important that we spend a lot of time with the people and places and things that we find beautiful. For the sake of the why of resisting, it's really important that we spend time with the people and places and things that give us joy. Now, that seems counterintuitive, right? If there's a fight coming, shouldn't we be like practicing our Taekwondo and doom scrolling on Twitter so that we know the latest outrage? Well, folks can do that if they want, and being physically fit and well-informed are certainly good things. But it's a question of motivation. When we are conscious of what gives us joy, when we are conscious of what we find beautiful, of what we love, then we know what we are willing to fight for. We'll fight for the things that we love, that we find beautiful. And when we talk about courage, which is this month's theme, we're reminded that courage can be hard to find. But it's easier to be brave when we know what we love, when we know what we, who we love, and what we consider beautiful and precious. Then we're motivated by love and not something else. And the things that we do out of love are done more purely, done with more integrity, than when we are motivated by other feelings. Frankly, it's so easy these days to just be angry and to let anger be our motivation. Anger is important energy. Anger tells us that there are things to attend to. But if we stop there at our anger, we're not acting from a healthy place. I recently participated in the workshop on peaceful dialogue that was organized by our Healthy Community Committee. And I, I wanna thank them for doing that. That was really great. In that workshop, the presenter shared Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You've probably seen it, it's a pyramid with physical needs like air and water at the bottom, then safety, then belonging and love, which is part of being a community, then esteem, which is being appreciated and respected. And then above that is cognitive needs, which is creative, Creativity, foresight, making meaning, and aesthetic needs or beauty. And at the top is self-actualization, which is being all that you can be, which may or may not occur in the army. <laughs> While I sat in that workshop and looked at the hierarchy, it struck me that it is profoundly individualistic. The common good, the state of our community is not listed anywhere. I mean, it does mention belonging as a need, but that is still all about the individual. I've never been much of a fan of the hierarchy, but that at that moment, I saw how much it missed. I know that Maslow's theory is flawed because I've seen so many activists put the common good above their other alleged personal needs. I've seen so many activists sacrifice their safety, which according to Maslow forms the foundation for the other needs, 
And I've seen them risk their safety because they want to protect people in their community who they don't even know, or they want to protect some piece of environment. It's not an individualistic act. And that shows us how love is the motivator for good resistance. I've seen remarkable acts of bravery from people acting out of love. You know, one of my co-protesters with showing up for racial justice in Buffalo was a person who was non-binary. They willingly went into a situation where they knew they would be arrested. And after their arrest, they would be processed by a system that would insist on assigning a gender to this person. They knew that once they were inside the jail, they were much more vulnerable to assault and to abuse. They knew all these things, and they still put their body in harm's way. That was so brave, and it was such an act of love. Now that we've talked a little bit about the why, let's talk a little bit about, about how we put our bodies in the way. There's ways to do it right, and there's ways to do it wrong. Well, the higher risk in action is, the more preparation is required. In Buffalo, our group role-played how the action would go. And we tried to make it as realistic as possible. We took turns being the activists or being the screaming onlookers or being the police themselves, including pushing and pulling the activists, physically handling them. Folks who are going into harm's way need to be able to control their emotions. And it's much easier to do that if we've learned how angry it makes us to get pushed around, if you've had some rehearsal of that. And part of the preparation is establishing roles for everyone involved. There are folks who are going to actually, who are actually going into the civil, civil disobedience, they're the front line, but there also needs to be someone assigned to speak to the press. That way important messages are sure to get out. There also needs to be a single person who is designated to speak to the police. They're the representative of the group and they can find out important things like where the police are taking people they're arresting, or if the police intend to escalate their violence. At some actions, we had a person set up as a kind of central operator in a hotel near the site of the action. They were the clearinghouse for all information. Who's been arrested? Has there been a change in tactics? When to back down? Before an action, activists who think they might be arrested put their keys and wallets and phones in a plastic bag and then label it. They might write down where their car is parked in case other folks have to retrieve it in case the owner is detained. And these bags are all kept at the central operator. There are roles for everyone and for every level of comfort of risk in each action. And the people on the front line really rely on the folks behind the scene to make it say a safe and effective action. So being in a low risk, a low risk role is not less important. It's critical to making it work. These actions can, frankly, be terrifying. And that's why being in relationship is critical. At Showing Up for Racial Justice in Buffalo, we spent time together doing low-risk actions before we did high-risk actions. So we started out simply knocking on doors in white neighborhoods and inviting people to have conversations at race about race. And I have to say, I, I feel sort of sorry. Like I would knock on their door and they'd, they'd open the door and I'd say, hey, do you have five minutes to talk about race? <laughs> and they would get this deer in the headlights look. But some people would engage with us. Or we would do things like set up at a table in a busy coffee shop in a white neighborhood and put up a little sign saying, let's talk about race. 
you know, 95% of the customers who saw that, saw that pretended that I was invisible, but a few folks would sit down with me and some of those folks became members of our group. It was a really powerful relational way of organizing. So by doing these mildly challenging things together, we grew to know each other and eventually to care for each other. And when the time came to set ourselves down in the street and block traffic or occupy the police union office, our resolve was strengthened by having people we cared about and who cared about us on either side of us. Those relationships made all the work of organizing fun. The feminist anarchist Emma Goldman famously said, a revolution without dancing is not a revolution worth having. So joy and love and even fun are part of any good organizing effort. Those relationships are also supported by ex explicit agreements. For every action, we'd make a covenant together about how we were going to do that action. That always included an agreement to be nonviolent, no matter what, and to follow the directions of whoever was the action leader that day. Knowing that we were on the same sheet of music not only made us safer, it made us more effective. When we presented in an organized front, people were less likely to mess with us. Finally, we always made sure to make the most of the action. I do remember another group in Buffalo that was protesting at the county jail. They were just out in front of the county jail and they spontaneously decided to go to the county executive's office and protest there. Well, because they hadn't done any prior planning, it turned out that the county executive was not even there and there was no press there. So some of them ended up getting arrested and having a long hassle with the charges and their sacrifice made no impact whatsoever because they had not prepared ahead of time. Now, like I mentioned above, for our actions, we had media relations people ready with the messaging and we informed sympathetic media outlets ahead of time. So like when we did that action about occupying the sheriff's office, we told the TV station what was going to happen, and they were there taping us as we walked into the sheriff's office. We also had folks assigned to updating social media as the action commenced. So people at the, at the action would have the job of recording video and taking pictures, and these immediately were sent to the social media managers to share online. We made sure that if we were going to get arrested, it would raise the profile of the things that we were concerned about. To paraphrase the old saying, if an activist falls in the forest without any press to see it, there is no sound. These are extraordinary times, and they call for extraordinary measures from all people of conscience. But I don't think folks, but I don't want folks to think that the only way to make a difference is being arrested. We can put our bodies in the way in ways that work for our circumstances, for what level of risk we can tolerate. Just showing up can have a big impact, especially at the local level. My experience with the, the safe outdoor spaces is our, our city leaders are always watching for folks who consistently come to meetings, whether it's a city council or a press conference by the mayor or whatever it is. The more that we show up, the more that local leaders will listen to us. And you know what's really cool? We can go to city council meetings on Zoom and participate from Zoom from the comfort of our homes while we're eating dinner. That's really easy. Also, I wanna be real, putting our bodies in the way can also be just the act of being ourselves in an authentic way. It can be the act of not apologizing for refusing to fit in 
of a society that wants us to all act straight and act white and act able-bodied. We can put our bodies in the way by quietly and compassionately interrupting when we hear a microaggression in a conversation. There are a lot of ways to do that. Now, perhaps now is the moment when we feel like this is, this is when we've been called to put our bodies in the way as a choice. But it's also important to remember that sometimes our bodies are placed on the line whether we like it or not, or some people's bodies. I spent the last couple of days down in the Permian Basin seeing the devastation of the fracking fields. And I spent time in Hobbs where there are pump jacks just scattered throughout entire resident residential neighborhoods. And I met people who lost relatives to cancer simply because they lived next to a pumping site that spewed methane day and night. It smelled of oil all the time. Now these folks did not volunteer to put their bodies on the line. Our mutual love of gas and oil did that for them. So let's consider that for them as we decide for ourselves when to intervene. At Reverend James Reeves funeral, Dr. Martin Luther King gave a eulogy. And here's how he finished that eulogy. And I wanna note in advance that the language is gendered in the style of the times. But here's what he said. I say in conclusion that the greatest tribute that we can pay to James Reeb this afternoon is to continue the work he so nobly started but could not finish because his life was cut off at an early age. We have the challenge and the charge to continue. We must work right here in Alabama and all over the United States till men everywhere will respect the dignity and worth of human personalities. We must work with all our hearts to establish a society where men will be that out of one blood, God made all men to dwell upon the face of the earth. We must, we must work with determination for that great day. Justice will roll down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. We must work right here where every valley shall be exalted. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain and the crooked places straight. Amen, Dr. Martin Luther King. Amen, Reverend James Reeb. Amen, First Unitarian Church of Albuquerque. May it be so. Our Change for the Future recipient through November is Art Street, a public art studio used primarily by the unhoused people in our larger community and operated by Albuquerque Healthcare for the Homeless. Art Street also offers art therapy groups for the unhoused with a focus on dealing with the effects of trauma. In our increasingly unjust socioeconomic system, there are more and more among us who have no private sanctuary to which they can retreat, no safe place in which to lay their heads down at night, no shelter from the storm. 
This morning, you have a chance to help alleviate their suffering by donating to a program that offers the unhoused a voice through artful, creative expression and a chance at healing their psychic wounds through group therapy. To confer your gift, simply click on the, click on the link in the chat box. If you prefer not to give online, you can mail a check to the church earmarked for Art Street. The offering will now be taken. Love by Melanie Damore, who is an amazing song leader and activist. She was here in 2018, I believe. It was a long time ago, but she teaches all over the country. And this again is Lead with Love. One, two, three. You gotta put one foot in front of the other and lead with love. Put one foot in front of the other and lead with love. You gotta put one foot in front of the other and lead with love. Put one foot in front of the other and lead with love. Don't give up hope. Don't give up hope. You're not alone. You're not alone. Don't you give up. Don't you give up. Keep moving on. Keep moving on. You gotta put one foot in front of the other and lead with a foot. One foot in front of the other and lead with love. You gotta put one foot in front of the other and lead with a foot. One foot in front of the other and lead with love. Lift up your eyes. Don't you despair. Don't you despair. Look up ahead. Look up ahead. The path is there. The path is there. You gotta put one foot in front of the other and lead with a foot. One foot in front of the other and lead with love. You gotta put one foot in front of the other. so very grateful for the generosity of this congregation. Thank you. And thank you, soul singers, for the beautiful music today. As we continue engaging with today's message, you are invited to consider a question together. The question today, what stories do you know of Unitarian Universalists putting their bodies in the way 
out of love. I invite you to change from speaker to gallery view and to turn on your cameras if you feel comfortable doing so as we do our peace greeting. In just a couple weeks, when we connect with each other in this way, one hand on our heart and the other extended outwards, we will also be able to see all of the other folks in our congregation attending in person. That will be special. What a great reminder of our connections to one another. Let's extinguish our chalices. May we use our bodies to let justice roll down like water. Go in peace and practice radical love.